everyone. We're back with another episode of SLP's Wine and Cheese. I'm Deb. And I'm Maria. And welcome our lovely guest, school psychologist, Michelle. Hi. Hi, Michelle. We're super excited to talk to Michelle, but first let's get into what we are drinking. So Maria, first tell us what you have. Yes, I am drinking Yellowtail Cabernet Sauvignon. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, I try to get fancy, Michelle. That's me. <laughs> so it has aromas of blackberries and vanilla and mint leap. That's what it says. But I really don't taste any mint, so I have to be honest. But it's a very smooth wine, and I'm drink. I'm eating it with feta, which is like super salty. I don't know about feta. Like I'm like major Greek, Michelle. Um, so I feel like the saltiness, oh, awesome. the smoothness. Yeah, the smoothness of the wine is really good. It really, like, complements each other. And I wouldn't say one of them is, like, overly outweighing in taste. Like, they're both pretty good in their taste. They're pretty nice and even. So I'm happy. I am enjoying the snow that's outside, drinking wine, eating salty but delicious cheese. So, And, Michelle, what do you have? I have a Bogle Vineyards. It's a blend. <laughs> so it's also Zinfandel, Syrah, Cab, and Petite Syrah. It's super uh, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. So yeah, I don't know. Okay. I read it from the back. So <laughs> that's all I know. And I'm also having feta. You having feta too? Yes. <laughs> how do you feel like the feta goes with your wine? I like how mine goes with my wine. See, I just feel like wine and cheese always go well together. Like, I don't mm. know. I've never had a bad combo, really. Yeah. Well, you should come on our show a little bit because yeah. sometimes <laughs> we don't, I don't like, Deb will just eat it, whatever, and drink it. Like, whatever. Yeah, same. For me, I'm just like a little bit, you know, I'm trying to, you know, move on up in yeah. the. Maria's like, I have a refined palate. It's, <laughs> you'll accept anything with alcohol in it. You've been <laughs> drunk or whatever. I don't know. Um, no, sometimes it can get overwhelming, but my combination is not overwhelming today, so I'm excited. So I drink my wine. Thumbs up. Oh, what about you, Michelle? Yeah, we didn't do drink it or sink it. Yeah, drink. Deb, tell us about your wine. <laughs> um, okay, so I have like a Plavak Gura Dalmatia, and it's actually a Croatian wine, which I went to Croatia and I loved it there. I didn't think that they would had great wine and food I thought what What? they had a giant war in the 90s so I don't think that like cuisine was their priority for a while but um no their wine and food was delicious I loved Croatia their wine was my favorite and they don't really yeah they they the waiter told me he may have lied that they don't really export their wines and they win a lot of wine festivals within like Europe and unfortunately, the U.S. doesn't get to try as many Croatian wines. So that's why, of course, yeah, I've never really tried Croatian wine. Well, yeah. here I am yeah, with my popular. wine, and it's good. They're very uh, good. Like, they're very known for their wines, but only within Croatia and Europe. Oh. You got to yes. go there. Yeah, I loved it. I, it was my I loved it, too. Um, but this it's wine, good. it's... Um, it's got fruity notes in it and black currant and cherries and it goes well with young cheeses. So I'm having this red wine with a cream cheese that's cranberry macadamia on a cracker. Cause I oh. 
treat myself today. Ooh. And I will drink it, not sink it. This is a good wine. So good. I'm yeah, good. Good. We all vote drink it. I like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I sipped and I was supposed to start talking. Okay. That's all right. So, Goes along so, with... Um, a little bit about Michelle. Michelle is here to talk to us about what it's like to be a school psychologist and the supports that they can provide not only to SLPs, but other staff members and families. Um, she works in a public school in New Jersey, and she is passionate about advocating, collaboration, and providing beneficial and necessary training to staff and families. Michelle works closely with the autism program at her school, and she also supervises ABA cases. And if that was enough, she's sitting for her BC uh, BA exam. Guys, metaphorical cheers right there. Yeah. Wow, Michelle. Virtual yeah. cheers. Yeah, good for you, cheers. Michelle. I'm just proud of myself. I'm only on my first glass, and you're like <laughs> over here. I'm like, good uh, job, Marie. Yeah, this podcast is going to make no sense in like five minutes. <laughs> well, that's what makes it fun and entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like the these people work with children. What's going on? I know. Yeah. It's <laughs> the ultimate drinking game because it's like you can keep drinking and you're like, wait, I am still smart. Like I remember things. <laughs> well, yeah. that's what you think. And then you I listen think. to it later. Yeah. yeah actually a great brain exercise. Just saying. I'm just like the guy who just did dizzy bat. <laughs> get off. Um, but yeah, so I thought of a game. So um, a little bit of background info. Uh, I've known Michelle for like nine years now because we worked together at a comedy club in Times Square while we were both in grad school. So she was going to grad school for psychology. I was going for speech pathology. So I thought it would be fun if I read jokes to Michelle and she guessed the comedian uh, right, yes. who told the joke. And I could not find enough appropriate jokes that were short. Right. All right, well, here's my question. Um, Michelle, has your uh, experience in the comedy world ever benefited you in your career in the educational world? Oh, that's a really good question. Well... In my experience, not just where we worked, but other comedy clubs that I've worked at, um, I feel like a lot of comics have a lot of anxiety. So it was like <laughs> really good to yeah. see how they dealt with it by like, for me, getting on stage would be like the most right anxious thing I could do. But for them, they almost like live with anxiety all the time, but then they go and do like the scariest thing ever to let it out, which I think it was really interesting. And that like kind of calms them a bit. Right, that's what I mean. Like to yeah. get their anxiety out, they do something yeah. for me, which I would have like a nervous breakdown. Right, but so, Michelle and I did do stand up the same year. So you did do it. I didn't have a nervous breakdown either, so. No. But I have a <laughs> question. Do you think they have a lot of anxiety because they're so worried about getting up there and being funny and people liking them and making money? No, I think they're all, I don't know, can I say this? <laughs> I think they're all very, a lot of them have like insecurity issues and that's kind of why they do that in the first place to get up and try to make people laugh. But they're all also have the talent to make people laugh. So right, I mean, that's just like how it comes out. To be an, a, com a comedy writer, you have to be an overthinker. And I think overthinking kind of lends itself. Like, anxiety and overthinking are, mm -hmm. like, one in one. So, like, that kind of mentality actually makes them perhaps a better joke writer because they're always overthinking and, like, concerned about every possible thing that could go wrong. 
Oh, yeah. okay. Well, that that makes me feel like you know speech doesn't work out. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm an overthinker too, but that like it just manifests much differently in me. I would not be able to do that. So yeah. So I give them all a lot of credit for getting up in front of people. All right. So let's go to our question and answer portion of the show. So Michelle, yes. tell us about where you went to school and what motivated you to pursue a career in psychology. Okay. So for graduate school, I went to Long Island University, Brooklyn campus. That's where I did my school psych um, graduate program, but I did my undergraduate at Buffalo State. <laughs> Go Bills. <Yeah. laughs> um, and in my senior year, I took like an internship class that was kind of like an elective almost, like a 400 level class that was an elective. And they were like, choose anywhere that you just want to do some hours. So I randomly, I didn't know anything about school psychology. I randomly chose a woman that was a school psychologist in a middle school. Her hours worked with my hours. And I loved it. I loved how she did academic things like testing and helped kids socially, emotionally. And everything was like around their education. And it wasn't just like sitting down, talking to a child. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I... Um, majored in, I had a double major, psych and criminal justice, and I originally wanted to go for forensic psychology. Oh. That, that's still very interesting to me. But as far as availability of jobs and how long I would have to go to school for that, I decided that I really liked school psychology, and then I went to grad school. I would always think I wanted to be on Criminal Minds like that. Me too, uh, I still do. Yeah, that seems like the coolest job, but there's like five people for that job and they can't. Exactly, in like the whole state. So I was like, I can't deal with that. So That's funny because I think we're all around the same age. Yeah. Um, that's when those shows came out, like when we were in high school. And I actually went to like a college fair and they talked about that. Like ever since those shows came out, like those majors like exploded, <laughs> which is great. Yeah, I wanted to be um, yeah. Olivia Benson on Law and Order. Yeah. <laughs> I still do, but. Anyway, so Michelle, mm -hmm. what was it like starting your career and how has your experience shaped your passions and your pursuits? Well, I don't know how it is for you guys, but I do feel like when you go to school, you're kind of taught about your job, like in a perfect world kind of thing. Yes. And when you get thrown into it, you're like, oh, this is way more paperwork than I thought. This is way more, just a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. um, I was lucky to get a job in the district that I interned. I had to do a full year unpaid internship and I was lucky to get a job there after. So I was semi-trained in the district. Mm -hmm. um but I was like thrown right into it mm -hmm. like full caseload really busy school and I think that was the best thing that ever happened because now I feel very prepared in my job I'm in my sixth year in the district so that was good and I think now I'm a little bit more passionate about uh what you said in the beginning like collaborating with parents because of my other job I work in homes and then my day job, I work in schools. I try to help my parents in school change their home life to carry over what we do in school so that it's effective. And Can you give us an example of something like that? 
Yeah, like I, dive into uh, depending on what insurance they have, we really try to help them get services in the home depending on what the kid needs. So if it's ABA services for a student with autism, or it could be just counseling for a student with social emotional issues. Some students are diagnosed with anxiety, depression, things like that. We try to get services in the home to do family therapy. There's a lot of different state services. It all depends on what their insurance is. So we go over that with them and we try to like set them up as much as possible so that we know that when that student goes home, everything we did in school is not just being undone. And then we also give them strategies to use at home too. I think that's important because when you're in a school, um, you have to like bridge that gap and you feel like you're like in the middle of that bridge you know like you are part of that bridging that gap and I think that's something like school psychologists maybe are not always known for so that's I'm glad you're bringing that up you know yeah when I think school psychologists I'm thinking like oh you're the ones with the IQ tests and have to give the parents the hard news of like yeah sorry this is where your kids scored you know no that is part of it but sometimes you have to like push them a little bit too and try to show a lot of uh, parents are receptive. They just don't know that these resources are out there. Okay, so right now we're just going to pause for a commercial break. So stay tuned. We're going to continue talking about the roles and responsibilities of a school psychologist and also ABA therapy. This episode of SLP's Wine and Cheese is brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. It's a 100% SLP-owned website that specializes in practical, engaging, evidence-based video and audio courses. There's more than 600 hours of courses available on demand. Yes, there are weekly live and interactive courses and pod courses. They offer unlimited plans starting at $89 a year. And now you can get $10 off with the code WINE. W-I-N-E. So enter wine at checkout. And we're back. Okay, so um, Michelle, can you quickly talk about the roles and responsibilities of a school psychologist and maybe walk us through a day in the life? I do case management, which means I am in charge of students' IEPs, students with special needs, special education students' IEPs. So we start off the year with this, all the special ed. I work on a team with three other people another psychologist, a social worker, and a learning consultant. And we work together and split up the caseload. So the students in the school, we each have a caseload. We're in charge of those. We also take referrals from the building. So we work with the special ed teachers of the students that are already classified. And then we also work with the general ed teachers of the students that are not classified yet. Um, providing interventions before they get referred, things like that. We monitor stuff like that. And so we take RTI. Yeah, like that. It's called, we call it INRS, like intervention and referral services. We have a whole committee on that. I do a lot. I work with the autism program in my school. So I support those teachers with behavior plans, things like that. Also do it for the kids in the in-class support settings, the general ed settings, reaching out to parents, scheduling. You have to be organized basically to be a school psychologist because my calendar is like if I showed it to you you'd be like what kind of psycho wrote this calendar like it's crazy and you have to just make sure everything's in compliance that's the main thing like that's what our supervisors are looking for and then we also work with like the related service providers so 
I'm sure you guys deal with this when you need to update an IEP, when a meeting's coming up, I'm in charge of the whole IEP team, letting everybody know when the meeting is, who needs to update what. And then of course I do the IQ testing and report writing for all the students that we evaluate. We evaluate students in the school. We also evaluate the preschool students that live in the neighborhood of the school. Oh, so they're going to they don't attend our school, if they live in the neighborhood and they're referred, we have, they come in and we have to assess them. Oh. Do you feel like delivering the results to parents is like one of the hardest jobs? That's what I think it is. I mean, I know you guys have a ton of roles and responsibilities that like other people don't even know about, let alone let alone other people don't even see. But like my contact with the school psychologist is like, oh, I don't want that job giving those results. Like that's tough, you know? I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think you kind of like get to know which parents and, you know, what you're going to say. And I always just focus on the positive things first. Like I don't really use like extremely low range or, you know, very low or – even borderline, like I try to stay away from like the labels and try to focus on, oh, this was their strength. Even if their strength is an 80, that's right. area, you know, like I try to say like, this is where they have the best skills. So we need to, this is why they're doing so well in math because they have this skill, but they're not yeah. doing so well in language arts because their verbal comprehension scores need work. So we need to work on that, you know, like rather than yeah. Right. Like saying the label of the score. Right. Right. The level of severity. Right. Because even though, like you said, even if it is an 80, which is still like, let's say, you know, out of 85 to 115 is still on the lower end, but like for them, it's not. So like, let's yeah. look at like the child compare, like just him or her and like what they're good at instead of just keep comparing them to like those typical peers, which like, you know, yeah. They're not typical, so let's just focus on, like, what they're good at. Exactly. Yeah, I think okay. that's excellent. school students are in our meetings. They Once they're 14, they attend our meeting. Yeah. So we test all of our eighth graders before they go to high school. So they're there in the meeting, the student. So right. I kind of say, like, how did you feel about our testing? Did you think it was difficult? Did you think? And then in front of their parent, you know, we talk about the scores that way so that they don't feel like, you know, they're in the extremely low range or they failed or anything like that. We want to like, they're being talked about, like you want them to feel included and talk too. And like, you're, you're bringing them into the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good to keep in mind. Like if you're talking about a younger kid, like if this younger kid could hear this right now, would I say like these words? And if I wouldn't, like maybe I shouldn't even say them to their parent then. Right. Yeah, that's true. So can you um, talk a little bit about the different special ed programs in the public school system? Yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, so we have, we had a meeting the other day and I just, I didn't know this number, but out of the 30,000 students in our district, 4,200 of them are special ed. So I don't know what that percentage is. Right. <laughs> I was like, that just seemed like a lot to me. Yeah, Let's just say a lot. <laughs> yeah, so that sounds like a lot, and it is. Um, we have levels from preschool all the way to um, end of high school. So we have preschool disabled classrooms. That's the what they're called. So um, at that level, they don't have to have any specific classification diagnosis. They can just fall below 
in the testing and 33% below in any area. So that could mean that they just have a speech delay or that could mean that they might be autistic and we don't label them really specifically until kindergarten. And then from K up, we have, so we have autistic um, from pre-K all the way through high school. So it goes primary, grammar, middle and high school. We also have um, learning disabled classes. So you could be mild learning disabled, moderate or severe. Um, severe is more like the, the lower ends, like uh, severe learning disabilities where there's a really big discrepancy and they're not catching up at all. Um, all of these programs have their own curriculum and small class sizes, like six for the autistic, 12 um, to 16 for the learning disabilities class. We have intellectually disabled classes, which is for kids that their IQ and adaptively they're below 60. Mm -hmm. I'm below 70 adaptively and um, their IQ is below 70 in all areas and they work more on life skills and like a, a totally different curriculum they have um, this year we have a new program in our school uh, it's been throughout the district but it's just was added to our school it's behavior disabilities so oh. you have to be emotionally disturbed yes. to be in that program Okay. Um, so that is, a, you know, it's a difficult class to work with because you're dealing with a lot of outside things, not a lot of parent involvement, and just a lot of different behaviors and, and you know, teaching that the students, like, how to interact with others. And what else do we have? Oh, and execution criteria for each of these things. So is placing them difficult, or is it like you fit – is it easy to kind of place everyone in these places? So like, for example, you can be autistic, classified autistic, and you can be in a regular in-class support or pull-out resource class. Right. But in order to be in the autistic classroom, you have to be autistic. Right. So your classification doesn't uh, really tell you where you have to go, but in order to be in those special classes, you have to be like in order to be in the behavior disabilities class, you have to have, okay, you know, emotionally disturbed. Mm -hmm. Also, um, we have the hearing impaired program in my school. We're the only school in the district that has it. So I've been in this school for three years and working with the AI kids, like it's been, I've learned so much about like hearing equipment. The oh. therapist is teaching us how to sign like on Friday morning, she signs. So we're like, learning some signs and things like that. So I feel like I've learned a lot from that class. It's a self-contained, some kids have cochlear implants, some kids, I don't know, do you guys work with? Yeah, I have so many friends too, who like are dying to infiltrate that aspect of speech pathology because there really aren't a ton. There's like yeah. St. Francis in Brooklyn, where we have that one school, um, but there's not a ton of opportunities because it's not like there's a lot of, students with that need I suppose but um that's cool that you have that whole yeah we're the only school in the district we actually have kids from other surrounding districts that come to our program so they they have teachers of the deaf that sign they do total communication so they sign and talk because every kid has different needs like they're completely deaf and then some have cochlears some have hearing aids some have like mild or severe hearing loss so. and it's not just one building right you have you're in charge of the whole district so this is in my building we have autistic learning disabled inclusion pull out resource ai and wow. behavior class wow but 
Well, we have like one of each. Okay. So these are programs throughout the district. So when we need to place kids that we don't have room for, like, yeah, we okay. send them elsewhere and we work with other schools and things like that. But I'm placed in one building this year. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. That's like, like a lot of stuff that you know. I know. Sorry, that was like <laughs> but that's good. Like throwing it at you. you. Seem like you got a handle on everything. And then um, so, you know, how can school psychologists support teachers and staff? So you have to kind of just be ready to there you we're like their go-to people a lot. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you have to be ready for kind of like to work closely with the administrator. Nice. So what are some suggestions that you can give to um, perhaps a speech pathologist or an occupational therapist with your school psychology and your ABA background when you're having a child with a behavior issue? I usually try to find out the function of the behavior. Mm -hmm. first. So a lot of times people come to you and say, he's out of control or he won't do anything for me. He just won't do anything. So I always try to like look further into it, find out before I give any suggestions so that I know that we're not both wasting our time. And I try to just like support them and follow up with them as much as possible because you guys are dealing with a lot of behaviors. Like you have kids in your office, I hear them screaming in there and stuff. And it's not effective if you're doing speech if that's happening. Yeah. So I, I try to really like, support and go in and even like I've observed kids in speech before I work really closely with my OT and my speech and they have to get their services so like we just work together to try to make that happen right I feel like um I don't have so much of a struggle in terms of behavior I don't have time for anything it's like the way that they stack my schedule it's yeah. like one kid's done the next one starts so what so like if I have any sort of issue like Maybe someone's just crying because their feelings are hurt. Like, yeah. I don't even have time. No. So, like, well, I do. I make the time, and then I'm behind schedule, and I have nothing yeah. done, and I'm staying an extra half hour because of it. But, like, that's my biggest struggle as a speech pathologist. It's not like I can't – I don't know – it's not like I don't know how to, like, confront the behaviors. I don't have – I don't feel like I have the time to, like, spend to – work on them or even listen which I I feel like it's like the most unfortunate aspect of the job yeah yeah I mean we don't have I don't do a lot of counseling to be honest like I don't when parents are like my kid really needs counseling and if it's like severe enough I'm like they need outside counseling and I'll help you with that because in school it's like we don't have two hours out of the day no wow. kids no kids have that even right. like gen ed kids their schedules are stacked so like you, like you said, no one really, I don't want to say we don't have time, but like we got to keep it moving throughout the day. So you can't keep pulling everybody out of class because no. then they're missing out on like foundational skills. Right. right. And that'll just contribute to their challenging behaviors or their, you right. know, their issues, I think, you know, cause then you're going to just, I'm sure they're already struggling academically or are at risk. So, you know, that would maybe do more harm than good maybe i don't know yeah, I think so. hey everyone i hope you're enjoying this extremely informative episode of slp's wine and cheese right now we're gonna pause for a commercial break and now a word from our sponsor Hey ladies, I'm kind of sort of loving and openly admittingly fangirling y'all um, lovely duo of SLP's Wine and Cheese. 
Yes, and we love listening to your podcast, First Bite. Well, thank you. I'm Michelle Dawson, and I specialize in functional but fun treatment for medically fragile kiddos, especially for those that have feeding and swallowing impairments and who use AAC devices as part of their total communication plan. On my podcast, First Bite, we discuss all topics related to early intervention and pediatric speech therapy. We address those worrisome ethics and clinical supervision concerns, as well as jump into private practice ownership and really get into the nooks and crannies of all the things in between by interviewing guest experts in the field. Then, every fourth episode, we bring it back home to my Palmetto State by having evidence-based reviews of case studies or resources with my dear friend and colleague, Aaron Forward, who kind of sort of came up with this whole idea. First Bite is partnered with Speech Therapy PD, offering evidence-based content in a podcast. Each episode can count as one hour ASHA CEU. Find them on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Absolutely. And thanks for all you do and for spreading joy into the world. Cheers. And now back to our show. Okay, so speaking of speech pathologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, the ones that I work with, I always tell when we come to a meeting as a team, you guys are the professionals in that area. So whatever you recommend, I always am on board. So even if the parent doesn't, because I'm the case manager, I kind of run the meetings, right? So I say, oh, this is, you know, Miss Brooks, she's the speech therapist, she's going to talk about um, Johnny's progress in speech. So whatever you say, even if you say, I want to reduce his services, I want to do this. I always say, you guys, if you have the data for it and Mm -hmm. we're there, if they don't agree, then we all don't sign. I mean, we all sign and they don't have to sign. You know what I mean? Like we, we're a team. So I think that's really important because you have to just stick to what's right for the kid and not really let other influences factor your recommendation because it doesn't look professional if not everyone's on the same page and you just have to know it all before you come to the meeting. And, and I'm not a speech therapist, so you know better than me how they're doing in speech. Same thing with occupational therapy, physical therapy, anything like that. Right. And that I'm always telling everyone, like of all the questions that I get from um, people listening to our show, I'm always like, you have to have faith in yourself. You have to know that like you went to school for a very long time. You're doing a job that you care about and that you're passionate about. So if you truly believe that this person requires more services or is ready to be uh, decertified, or if they need an assistive device that you need to like advocate for, then like, know that like you are competent and you should have confidence in yourself to advocate for that and don't let like the influences of the finances of the district or the preferences of the family like deter you for from trying to get what you think is necessary cheers for that that's what my contribution to that was (laughs) i i did work in a school though that like they just did whatever the parents wanted no, Deb, you would, you should see me. I like, I'm like half lawyer <laughs> school in a meeting, but it is true. Um, there are therapists that have said to me, well, what all different areas, like, well, what does the parent want? I said, I'm not asking what the parent wants. I'm asking what you're recommending before we go to the meeting. Wow. Because you're the one that 
is recommending it. And then when we come to the meeting, if the parent says, well, I'm okay with reducing it to maybe one, one session, but can we do one session till the end of the year and then phase it out? Like maybe we can agree, compromise on something like that. You know, I never hate that when people do that. Cause sometimes like I, I decertified four kids like last month and they're all like, what do you mean? Cause I didn't know until the IEP meeting came. Then I went, I mean, I had a feeling I'm like, everyone's doing well, but I don't know the meetings coming until like two weeks. And then I'm like, oh, I never told Maria that she's going to leave speech soon. And then they're so no. surprised. So I would yeah. rather that, like, we got one session a, a week until the school year ended and then they got decertified officially. So but, wait, they do the recommendation without you? No, I, so I do the recommendation. But I don't know the meeting is coming until the report is requested. And then when I do that report, I decide whether they should stay or whether they should be decertified. And, and so I always have a list in my head of like, who's getting reduced, who's getting decertified. I don't know when their meeting's coming. So it, it was like a surprise. It, and then like, they no longer have an IEP once that meeting happens. So I can no longer bill for them. So I still take them like one more time for a party. Yeah. But at the same time, like, they all, when I walk in the door, they're all like, oh, is it me? It's my turn. Like, they're all pointing to themselves <laughs> and they're like this. And then it's not them anymore. Yeah, and like I, some kids do need to be phased out. Like, some kids yeah. can't handle that change. Like, yeah, in February? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I feel some, good. Like, some have yeah. been getting it for years because of the parents, and we need to declassify them like that. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like I the other school I worked in, I was like, oh I guess we're doing four times forty. Okay. Like there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. Um, push in four times a week and watch you go to the bathroom every second. Like <laughs> uh but observing carryover of skills. That's what you were doing, Deb. Good for you. I, I was documenting avoidance behavior. <laughs> Good. good you have data for it you're good yeah but uh, yeah so i appreciate that michelle like goes along with what this the speech pathologist says or the ot or the pt yeah. or whatever. i feel like we, we could appreciate that but then that means that you have to have faith in your team uh, no i do and if i didn't then i would ask for more information and things like that but Right. You know, you got to be confident when you sit down and like i've dealt with parents that bring lawyers i've dealt with parents that record all the meetings or supervisors have to come and you have to be confident. So you have to meet as a team to talk about it before you sit down. That's right. In some cases, obviously you can't in every case, but in some cases that sensitive cases, you have to do that. So I was thinking we can go into our next topic of ABA, applied behavioral analysis. Yeah. What is it and what motivates you to pursue your BCBA? I'm going for that because one of my professors in graduate school was a BCBA and he based a lot of our courses around ABA, taught us a lot. Anyone that studies ABA knows what I'm talking about when I say the Cooper book, the ABA Bible, and that we, we read it to study and everything. So we read that in grad school. And I do feel like a lot of it applies. And what it is, is changing behavior by changing the environment. And that's what I think a lot of what works with a lot of kids, but it works when you do it with a good ratio. So a smaller ratio. And when you do, 
I work one-on-one outside of, in my second job, which I do ABA, I do one-on-one and it has to be consistent. So everybody has to be on board and know what ABA is and work one-on-one and do discrete trials and things like that. In schools, it is a little bit difficult because sometimes you don't have the teacher on board or the aide on board or the parent on board. But when they are on board, the progress is amazing. And that's why I love ABA. What type of progress have you witnessed using ABA with individuals on the autism spectrum? One student that I'm working with, we started working with him on attending, like sitting for 10 seconds and waiting and looking at us when we said his name. And now he'll look right at you and say, I want Cheerios. Ah, So, you know, so maybe to a typical developing person, a four-year-old that they're like, big deal that's he's still behind but when you look at the progress from where he started and his parents maybe thought he would never speak to now I think that's huge so that's why I love ABA because I get to see those changes and things like that yeah absolutely what are some pros and cons to using ABA the pros are effectiveness Mm -hmm. I would say it's very effective it's actually the only thing that's scientifically proven to help kids with autism right now yes right and also the cons are like I said everyone's got to be on board so like if a kid is having attention seeking behavior screaming at the top of the lungs and all day in school we're ignoring it and teaching a replacement behavior then that's going to take much longer to break so everyone has to ignore everyone has to be on the same page with this and that's why I think it's hard in school because there's barriers. Yeah. And also in terms of, so I have definitely seen the progress uh, for the pros aspect of ABA, but like sometimes it's difficult to like initiate the process of ABA yeah. and it might be like a harsh something, like harsh for the parent to witness. Yeah, it is. Right? Yeah. Or, like or, I'm telling your kid to sit and they're probably like, why are you talking to my kid like a dog? Like right. that's kind of what it is. But then they don't realize that the goal. Yeah. I'm working on sitting with my kid. Why am I paying for this? Or why am I, why is this being provided? Right. And then they, they don't understand that. Like we're teaching them to follow that instruction to that. Right. When I say an instruction, you have to listen within a certain amount of time. That's socially appropriate. Things like that. Right. And you have to attend to me on the speaker, but they might not see it that way at first. And that's why I feel like once consistency, if everyone's on the same page, then you really start to see the progress. Like sometimes parents don't realize that. Why do, why do they have to ask for something? Why? I know they want milk. Why can't I just give them milk? Yeah. Because once they start requesting, I heard from somebody. Yeah, like once you start requesting, all the other language is going to start too. Because right. then you know, I can't get what I want until I talk. Right. Because I don't know how to talk. So I think that parents are like, well, I know he wants milk and I'm busy, so I'm just giving him milk. And I don't blame them because I'm not a parent and being a parent looks pretty hard. So <laughs> I don't know for Sam, but it looks hard. Yeah. <laughs> I always think that too. Yeah, it's hard. It definitely looks hard. Well, and I, it's I hard. ABA yeah. is hard to implement. Right. The right way. But if you do it, it is very effective. For this child's or this individual's full existence, 
they have been trying to figure out the world in the way that they perceive it. And right. they've been like navigating it in a way that got them things that they wanted based on like looking at it or acting yeah. out or whatever it is that they did that got what they wanted. And now a stranger is coming in and disrupting their whole like process. So it's not going to look pretty. No, it's called an extinction burst. I love ABA terms. They're so extreme. They're like, we're going to extinguish this. I have a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like violence. And I'm like, whoa. All right. I was just going to say work on the behavior, but I like extinguish more. Like, we are going to drill this. I'm like, yes, 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 we are. She's ABA trained too. Yeah. I think ABA is great. It is very methodical and everything is like very well thought out and like broken down and then further broken down so but yeah you guys are very intense with your terminology yeah i'm not that in, i'm not very rigid like i do go outside a little bit like if a kid no is yeah no, no i see a lot of great therapists <laughs> go outside but they their their terminology their semantics are very extreme yeah. They're like zero to hundred real quick. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend that worked at the Brooklyn Autism School and I yeah. was friends with him maybe my second year of being a speech pathologist. And like a lot of that time I was in crisis mode because I was like overwhelmed with paperwork. I was driving to like 52 places in a week and like some kids were easy and then like some kids were easy but it was hard because I was around their parents or their family or some kids were difficult and like I guess I would vent to him and he would always be like the problem is like speech pathologists go to school and they learn all of this stuff about speech pathology but they're not trained in any type of method to confront that issue whereas he was an ABA therapist and he saw everything very formulaic, which, like, I didn't admire at that time until he made me realize, like, oh, maybe I wasn't actually trained in a strategy, you know? Like, you just go in there with personality and wordless. Yeah. That's what it is to be a speech pathologist. You're, you're, you know more about the mouth and speaking and how it, the words come out yeah and like the order in which you acquire I go, I go to my speech therapist all the time about my at-home cases I was like she's trying to say the word but like it's not behaviorally she's trying to say it and she can't say planning it. it's a praxia yeah like I'm like can I videotape her and show it to you like what is going on so it, you guys do know a lot we're so knowledgeable about the the speech mechanism and cognitive language skills and all of those things but there's not go there do this check this ABA is so formulaic and strategic which yeah. is what I admire about it same here same here yeah I think I've done my internship in an ABA school or they did a lot of like uh, mass trials, mass discrete trials, token boards. And I feel like that really drives a lot of how I do my therapy, like breaking down skills and um, like teaching. And I've taught, I've told parents this and I've even Deb and Deb has applied it. Like you're teaching that kid. I say something, I get something. I say something, I get something. And like, that is really like, what needs to be taught, especially in kids with autism. And that's like what PEX is too. You know, that's what the beginning stage of PEX is and PEX yeah. is based off the ABA. So that's like where speech and like the ABA can kind of be combined like with PEX and like 
a lot of my nonverbal, minimally verbal students, I started them off on text and like years later, and say overnight, years later, they're like speaking in phrases, you know, so. But yeah, ABA is great. You guys need to send me some like things for PECs because I use that too. And I don't like, yeah. I need to learn how to make a PECs book. Yeah. So many thoughts. Email me, email me. <laughs> we should get into tips and tricks now though. So yeah. our tips and tricks segment is everyone offers a tip or trick that's like easy to use during therapy or working with clients that requires little to no prep. It's just like one little thing that you can do always seems to win them over or like get the job done in terms of organization or like attention techniques, whatever you'd like to talk about. So Maria, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, I'm inspired again by this episode. I've decided a new goal for myself is to pick tips or tricks relevant to the episode. Okay. <laughs> uh, since we're in the ABA realm and I have that mindset of ABA always in my head based off my training, my big thing is when you're teaching a new skill, immediately reinforce. Yeah, that's awesome. I think Thank that's, you. That's so I don't know what the skill is. I'm just going to like point it out. Like maybe pointing. There it is pointing so immediately when they reach shape their hands into the point and give them what they pointed for even if it's not exactly or you know like don't go around all the other little variables just like they point it they got it or like immediately reinforce so immediately reinforce new skills and then my tip or trick is going to be so um whenever you are having behavioral issues within your session Let's say, so for instance, today I had a, a group of three and two of them were having an issue together. One was the instigator and one was blowing the situation out of control. So I removed the instigator. I had a conversation with him in the hall. I confronted the behavior. I brought him back in and I dropped it. I didn't even acknowledge that it happened. And I was like the happiest, most Disney character you ever would have seen. I was like, oh, okay, that's a great sentence. And you read that beautifully. Like it never even happened. And the whole rest of the session, I think everyone's mind was just so blown. They just did everything I wanted and we got more work done than we probably would have done had no one misbehaved at all. So just my tip or trip, trick is to remove the individual from the situation, confront the behavior, and then once you re-enter the speech therapy session, drop it like it never happened, and then just do your work and get drop out. Drop it like it's hot. Drop it like it's hot. Yeah. Drop it like it wasn't hot. Drop it like... It, it didn't even happen. It didn't even happen. Can't to that. Like, look in the mirror and say that to yourself. Like, drop it like it wasn't hot. Yes, and then you just quote me on that. But if it wasn't hot, you wouldn't drop it, I don't think. You know, drop it like it was, like, slippery, I want to say. <laughs> it just slipped away. I like drop that. Drop it like you're not good at catching. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Michelle, what's your tip or trick? My tip or advice would be to always remember that you work for the student. So when all the other influences from the administrators, the board of ed, the funding, like we talked about before, talk to your team, know the evidence, know the data, know the recommendation and stick by it. No matter what the opinions of principals, supervisors, parents, you have to just do what's best for the kid and make that recommendation. And I always try to do that. That's something I've always done. And I never come out regretting anything. Yeah. 
So it's difficult and sometimes you have to deal with certain things, but it's always worth it in the end. So that would be my advice to any school psych or starting well, out. that's good for SLPs too. And SLPs, yeah. Or anybody really, yeah. You just yeah. Because like you said, you know what you're doing. That's why you have this job, so. Yes. So we like to end our episodes with a quote. Michelle, since you're our guest, oh. what quote would you like to leave us off with? Oh my God, I'm so bad because I don't really do motivational quotes, but there is you're one. A psychologist and you don't like quotes. No, like I don't get it. Like when I see it, like, and how do you even know that person really said that? You don't. You don't, right? Pinterest told you. So I always tell this to kids, and it's I don't even know who said it. I think like it comes from like a Gandhi quote or something, but I always say like you can't change how other people act or behave, all you can change is how you react to it or how you behave. Because yeah. a lot of times you hear kids like, well, he did this and he, so I always just say that to try to absolutely help the situation. Yeah. So that would be, and that goes for adults too. So. Yeah. You can only control your own actions. Yeah. You can't worry about what other people say or think or do. Okay. Well, on that note, this has been another episode of SLP's Wine and Cheese. I'm Deb. I'm Maria. I'm Michelle. Thanks for listening. Thank Thanks you, everyone, for, for listening. Me. You're welcome. You're a plethora of knowledge. <laughs> Sayonara.